Lead us from the unreal to the real. Lead us from darkness unto light. Lead us from death to immortality. Om, peace, peace, peace. Good morning, everybody. And welcome back. You should say welcome back to me also. <laughs> well, that's an insider joke for those of you who know. Um, I am spending one year, like a study leave, at Harvard University. So that's why the welcome back for me too. I was in the church at uh, the Harvard Yard and University Yard there. And so the, after the end of the service, we always say, you know, peace unto you. And the, the congregation says back, and also to you, <laughs> also be upon you. The subject today is something very close to my heart, in fact, the hearts of many people who practice Vedanta. It is a part of our daily routine. The first thing I do, and many Vedantins do, when you wake up in the morning, is chant this text, which we're going to talk about this morning. Um, Prata Smarana Stotram. The, it literally translates into the hymn of morning remembrance, contemplating Brahman at dawn. Very beautiful hymn and very deep, very profound. Only three verses attributed to Adi Shankaracharya. I don't know how many books he wrote. He lived for only 32 years and considering that well, he was very prolific. Uh, the commentaries on the Upanishads, the commentary, is, uh, commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, the commentary on the Brahma Sutras, his, uh, his masterpiece. And then a series of books called Prakaranas, introductory texts. And then a series of hymns, many of them to God, devotional hymns. But some, like this, what we're going to talk about. The entirety of Advaita Vedanta compressed into three beautiful Sanskrit verses, which is, it's wonderful to contemplate on the moment you awaken into a new day or a new session. Uh -huh. So let's dive right into it. The first verse goes, Prata smarami hridisangsfurad atma tattvam satchid sukham paramaham sagatim turiyam yat swapna jagara sushuptam aveti nityam tad brahma nishkalamaham nachabhuta sangaha what does it mean at dawn i contemplate on the sense of i atmatattvam this i consciousness which is always continuing within us which is of the nature of existence consciousness bliss satchit sukham which is the goal of the Paramahamsas, the highest category of monks, the spiritual seekers, like Sri Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, the goal of that, uh, of, of those Paramahamsas. And it is the fourth, the Turiyam. I'll explain all of this. I'm just translating right now. Which illumines my waking. Can everybody hear at the back? Yes. Which illumines my waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. Continuously, without wavering that constant light, that Brahman I am, not a collection of matter. So let's dive into it. I was in the train yesterday coming back from Boston and there was this uh, gentleman sitting next to me. We started talking and it turned to, who am I? So the subject, <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, so he is an out and out materialist He's not. He thinks he is, but he's not actually. But um, he said, there's this body. It's a, a whirling mass of uh, atoms uh, with, with protons and electrons and neutrons within it. And that's all that I am. Very soon it will fall apart and that will be my death. I'm gone after that. There's nothing more. 
I really, that's why I'm not really all that interested. He's very interested in religion. He's been, he has read several hundred pages of Vedanta books recently. So that's why I'm saying he's not an atheist. Swami Vivekananda said, it's really very difficult to be an atheist. It's easy to talk. <laughs> what he is saying is, I am this whirling mass of matter that is called Bhuta Sangha, collection of matter, the five elements. The ancient cosmology, space and uh, air and fire and water and earth, a collection of this, of matter. That's all I am. Shankaracharya says in this, I am not that. How do I know? Is it possible to know? So the first clue he gives us, at, in the morning I wake up. And the first thing that comes to me, I am. And where am I? Here, on the bed. This is the body. Here is my room, my bedroom. This is our, our common experience. And yet, just an instant ago, I was not aware of the bedroom. I was not aware of the bed. I was not aware of the body, sleeping body. And yet I was aware. I cannot say that I was not aware. I was dreaming maybe. A different place. A different body in the, in the dream. Of course we will say after waking up, oh that was just a dream. But let us look what is called phenomenologically. Look at the, the essence of our experience, our internal experience. Our experience was, I am here. I'm maybe, um, my classic example, walking in Central Park or now it might be walking by the Charles River. And here is this, I'm walking, here is the river, and there are people around me. And yet all of that, all of that was presented, it changed in an instant. But what did not change? The consciousness, the awareness. If you say you did not change, that's correct, you did not change. But the problem with when I say I did not change, the problem will be I am so deeply identified with the body and mind, uh, that um, the moment I say, I did not change, I, the, the understanding goes straight to the body and mind. But if you say, awareness did not change. Look at the crucial difference they're making straight away between body, mind, and awareness. What is the body? Let's be very clear. But the beauty of Advaita Vedanta is it cleaves closely to our experience. Right now, what we are experiencing. L the body... Very clearly, this is the body. What that gentleman said, a whirling mass of matter. Of what Shankaracharya 1400 years ago called Bhuta Sangha, collection of matter. This is the body. Mind, the one which is talking, thinking, which is thinking, remembering, trying to understand, feeling, desiring, excited, bored, that's the mind. And remember, mind cannot, the body is not, you cannot deny it. Everybody sees it, and I myself see it. The mind also we cannot deny. It's, the, it's our direct experience. Everybody experiences a mind. Thoughts, feelings, emotions, personality. And now the subtle difference. Here is where there might be a lot of discussion. Is consciousness really different from the mind? Is mind really different from the body? So these are huge areas of debate, especially today. But Shankaracharya says, just look at your experience. You cannot deny that when you were dreaming, that walk by the Charles River, and then sitting up in, the, in your bed, in your bedroom, you cannot deny that there was awareness there, and there is awareness here. What changed? Place changed. Body changed. Mind also changed. When you're walking by the Charles River, you had different thoughts. Now you're sitting up in your bed, you have different thoughts. Your thoughts like, oh, that was a nice dream. Now I have to get up. So different thoughts. Mind is different now. Thoughts are different. Body, place, everything is different. But if you can appreciate consciousness apart from body and mind, would you not say the consciousness has continued? Are you aware now? You'll say yes. The first thing, when you say, I'm awake, it means I'm aware. <coughs> Were you aware in your dreams? Of course, without awareness, how can you have a dream? And uh, Vedanta goes on further and says, there's another state which we experienced, deep sleep. And this is deep here. Deep sleep is, uh, is actually quite profound. One Advaita teacher in the Himalayas said, um, 
Waking and dreaming are light stuff. It's deep sleep which is profound. We think deep sleep, we ignore it just like that. That's nothing. And waking is the thing. This is most important. This is where we are. And dreams are of interest to us, to our psych psychotherapist and all this. So dreams are of some interest. But uh, deep sleep is of no interest. And the Vedanta teacher says, in Hindi he said, Jagrat swapna to halki pulki baat hai. Sushupti ghari baat hai. Deep sleep is inter interesting. Why is it interesting? Because if you appreciate deep sleep as an experience, not as an absence of experience. Let me repeat that. If one appreciates deep sleep as an experience, yes, I experience deep sleep. Then the, the difference between mind and consciousness is easy to make. Otherwise, at what other times what happens is, even at right now, even if we try to differentiate between mind and consciousness, it will still be mixed up. We'll still say, I've got it. But what generally happens is what you've got is still the mind. Yeah. Imagine, recreate deep sleep. Or do it step by step. Be aware that here is the world. Be aware that here is the body. Be aware that there is the mind. And I'm aware of the world, the body, and the mind. Now suppose you change the world completely, a dream world, and a different body, and different thoughts. I am the same awareness. I've just changed my clothing. The external world the, uh, is your coat, and this physical body is your shirt, and the dream, the, the, the mental body is like your vest. You've changed all of that, put on new clothes. Consciousness continues. Now, imagine shutting down the dream also. I'm still there. The witness of the blankness. You can appreciate it in another way also. We're looking around here. Here is the world. Are you there? So, yes, Swami, I'm here. You're seeing the world. Close your eyes. If you close your eyes, very dangerous on a warm, balmy day like this. Close your eyes. It's unlikely to open it again after that. <laughs> Deep meditation. Close your eyes, you cannot see the world anymore, but are you still there? He said, of course, Swami, I'm there. I can't see, but I'm there. Now, simulate this. Suppose even the thoughts fall silent. You cannot see anything, hear anything, smell, taste, touch anything. Now, even the thoughts and memories and desires and plans also fall silent. Are you not there? Are you not there as the witness of the non-active mind? Okay, you can open your eyes now. Are you not there as the witness of the non-active mind? I'm still there. Which means, if we follow this line of argument, in deep sleep also, I, the consciousness, am still there. What has just happened is, my senses are shut down so I don't experience an external world. My mind is shut down so that I don't experience a subtle world of thoughts, feelings, emotions, dreams also. I, the consciousness, am there. I continue in deep sleep, in dream, in waking. And this is the story of my day. Uh, which day? Every day. In the Panchadashi, the first chapter, Vidyaranya says, and thus goes, uh, whirls the, the circle of our days, and nights, and the seasons, and the years. And then he goes on. And the eons, as we change body after body, Life after life, consciousness continues. The sun of consciousness, very beautiful uh, language Panchadashi uses, Vidyaranya. The sun of consciousness neither sets nor rises. It is ever blazing forth. I am that ever blazing forth sun of consciousness. We'll see, Shankaracharya will refer to that later on. Right now we see, I am the one consciousness in and through waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. Now notice, in waking, dreaming, and deep sleep, there are these two pairs. Every time we have an experience, we always have it as subject-object. Right now, you are a subject. And everything else here, the speaker, and the podium, and the stage, and the hall, and other people, they're all objects to you. Right? And you are the subject of your experiences. All our experiences, all that we have ever known in any state of experience, subject-object. 
So what is the subject object here? You are the waker and here is your waker's world, the world of the waker, which you are experiencing. And when we fall asleep, we have a dream world. And I am there too, experiencing the dream world. I'm playing some role in that drama, in the dream. I'm a subject experiencing a world. I just don't, don't know it as a dream. There is a dreamer and the dreamer's world. Subject, object. And equally, in deep sleep, there is the deep sleeper and the darkness, the potential darkness of deep sleep. Why am I calling it potential? Because all of the waking and all of the dreaming emerges from that. Um, remember, it's a very inside-out way of looking at it. So from your perspective, everything disappeared and everything emerged again. So that deep darkness of deep sleep, that's the world of the deep sleeper. And the deep sleeper is the subject. Of course, you might object here and um, you would be right. In deep sleep, it is not possible to distinguish subject and object. They're merged together as it were. So nobody ever says, I am the subject. I am experiencing my object, which is deep sleep. If you're doing that, you are not sleeping. <laughs> you may be doing Vedanta, but you're not sleeping. <laughs> So there are these three pairs and Vedanta says, Shankaracharya is saying here, these three pairs, subject and object, they arise, shine and disappear in the one consciousness you are. Look, this is very important. We normally identify ourselves with what? The object or the subject? Subject. We are normally identify right now, you say, I am the subject, I'm listening to your talk, Swami, you, your talk, everything is an object to me. You are a form, a visual object. You are, your words are an auditory object. And what you are, whatever I'm understanding is a mental object, and I am the subject. We have now three subjects. The waker, dreamer, deep sleeper. And three worlds, three objects, three worlds, the waker's world, this universe, the dreamer's world, and the deep sleep potential darkness, the deep sleeper's world. All three, they appear and disappear in you, the consciousness. This is a very important thing. The way we normally look at it is this. I'm a spark of awareness. Here is a vast world, a vast material world. In that there is this tiny body. And in this tiny body there are thoughts and feelings which are ephemeral, my mind. And I'm aware, maybe a tiny spark of consciousness, I don't know. Vedanta says just the opposite. You are this vast ocean of consciousness, limitless ocean of consciousness, in which appears a world, not one world, three worlds, the waker, waking world, dream world and the deep sleep in which appears the experiences. You, the consciousness, you appear as the subject in the waking world, in the dream world, in the deep sleep world. So Swami, that sounds nice and I would like to believe it, but how, it doesn't seem like that. World appears in me. I'm so tiny, I'm right here. And I can only see this room. How is it that the entire world is in me? That uh, one Swami in Haridwar, he asked this question in Hindi. He, uh, he was asking, just a minute, when you're saying you're all-pervading consciousness, just a minute, how can I be all-pervading? I'm here, I'm not even there. He was telling the speaker, I'm here, I'm not even there, where you are speaking, Swami. How can I be all-pervading? And the answer from the Swami was very interesting. You see, these answers serve to switch our paradigm. The way we look at the whole worldview shifts. The answer was, Remember the question, I'm only here, I'm not even there. Seems reasonable. And the answer from the Swami immediately was, ah, but here and there, where are they? Even the concept of here and the concept of there, are they not both in your awareness? In a dream, could you not say, I'm here, in between is the Charles River, on the other side is Boston. I'm so tiny, I'm here, and there's a Charles River, and the Boston is there, vast. All of that vast Boston and the Charles River and this bank and that bank of the river, are they not in all in the dreamer's mind? And once you wake up and you realize that, are, is the dreamer's mind also not in the awareness? 
Somebody put it beautifully, like waves on the surface of an ocean, the mind, thoughts, feelings, dreams, imaginations, memories, desires, they are like movements on the surface of consciousness. Vidyaranya puts it beautifully in Drigdrishya Viveka, like foam on the surface of the waves of ocean of Brahman is this entire universe, the network of name and form. They're like foam. A very interesting echo of you know, latest scientific jargon at least. Quantum foam. What is this visible universe? It's quantum foam. <laughs> but just linguistic similarity. Another thing before we go ahead. The three words and the three experiences, subject, object, there are three levels. Physical, subtle, and causal. What do I mean by that? That which is experienced by the senses. That's what we call the physical. Here, this is physical. And right now, I have another kind of experience. Physical is this world. And the body, physical. Yes. Which is publicly available for everybody. Inside the body, is it subtle? No, that's also physical. Because if you cut and probe and put a pipe inside and take a look, it still will be physical. So this whole world, whatever is visible to the senses, perception through eyes and ears and touch and smell and taste, physical world. This is called physical. Um, our Swami has always translated this as the gross world, but gross <laughs> means something else nowadays. So I, let's call it the physical world. And right now, I'm conscious of another dimension of my experience. All the time. What is that uh, dimension? The subtle world. Thoughts. Feelings, imagination, memory, ego, all of that is subtle. Why am I calling it subtle? You cannot reduce it to the physical. Till today, no scientist, no neuroscientist, no doctor has been able to show how the thoughts, feelings, emotions, ideas which constitute our personality, how exactly are they related to the functionings of the neurons. We take it for granted. I asked a gentleman who was sitting next to me, who said, I'm a mass of protons or neutrons. I said, how is it that the protons and neutrons are aware? Hard problem of consciousness. <laughs> so he said, oh, it's because of a peculiar arrangement. Uh, of, I said, is it possible then if you arrange it uh, in a peculiar way, you will get you know, artificially intelligent machines, so uh, will they be conscious? He's a very sharp man. He, he's a, a top engineer and a uh, very distinguished person. He said, no, I don't think so. Then why is it that matter in your brain generates internal awareness? While another and peculiar arrangement of matter in this most powerful computer which can do the same things that your brain does, activity. And you've attached senses, sensors. They can, uh, um, intelligent machine nowadays can see and hear and smell and taste. Sometimes you give talks and people have not turned off their phones and suddenly Siri says, I did not understand that. <laughs> so it's listening. It's listening. It's processing the input. You see? Input, and then there's output, and gives a very reasonable answer or a question. I have seen children, actually I saw a little, very intelligent little girl, carrying on a conversation with uh, her friend Siri. <laughs> she talks, Siri talks back, and her mother has to watch that she doesn't order things from the net. <laughs> and to get things, you know, just delivered. So, and yet, even the most most ambitious Apple or Google engineer will not say that our software, our machines are conscious. They do exactly what you do. They do exactly what I do. And many areas much better than us. And yet, they're not conscious. There's not that internal awareness. Tell me what peculiar combination of protons and neutrons will generate that awareness. This is not a new argument. Thousands of years ago, there was a group of philosophers called Charvakas in India, the materialist, the ancient Indian materialist, who said exactly this, we are a mass of matter. And against them, all the other Indian philosophers, um, 
the Buddhists and the, the Vedantists and the Nayaikas and all the other Indian belonging to all other groups, they would always ask this question. If matter can sense matter, let the pot see the kettle. You might think that's a ridiculous thing. Why is it ridiculous? In principle, there's no difference between the pot and the kettle and your brain and the colors and sights that we see and hear. In principle, both are arrangements of matter. What we're doing by asking that question is sh showing the dramatic, extraordinary difference between consciousness and matter. It, consciousness is not another arrangement of matter. Consciousness is not a product of another arrangement of matter. But remember, here is the nub, here is the, the crucial point. The mind in Vedanta and many other Indian philosophies is regarded as another kind of matter. On what grounds? Because the mind is also an object. Mind is called subtle object. And beyond the mind, what we experience in deep sleep, when the mind and the senses shut down, that state is called the causal state. For no other reason that it is the seed from which everything else emerges. And you, the consciousness, you are neither physical, nor subtle, nor causal. You are the fourth. Shankaracharya says, Turiyam, the fourth. And yet, you are not the fourth. You are the one. Why? Because notice, the physical and the subtle and the uh, causal, they appear, shine and disappear in you. And they are never experienced, they cannot be experienced in principle without you. Because you are, you are, without consciousness, what can be experienced? The very word experience includes consciousness. Does Siri experience you? Does Siri experience you when you walk into the airport and the door opens does the sensor experience you in a behavioral sense yes but is there an internal experience here comes another passenger now i must open the door of the airport no no internal feeling it's all worked out mechanically an engineer can tell you every step of the way what happens and nowhere in that is an internal experience So, without that consciousness, physical world cannot be experienced, subtle world cannot be experienced, and the causal deep darkness of deep sleep is not experienceable. If it is not experienceable, you have no way of saying that they exist apart from you. How do I know two things exist independently? This is an old argument which I have repeated often. How do I know that this paper and the, and the clock exist independently? Because... I can demonstrate, here is the paper, independent of the clock. There's no clock is nowhere in sight. Here is the clock, independent of the paper. The paper is nowhere in sight. So even when they go together, you can say the two are independent things. But if I cannot demonstrate the two things separately, if I cannot show them separately, I have no right to say that they exist independently of each other. I cannot show you the wood and the table separately here. The table does not exist, the, the podium does not exist apart from the constituent wood. Why? Because I cannot show you the podium apart from the wood, though I can show you the wood apart from the podium. It can be in some other form. Exactly like that, the world of your waking and the waker, the world of your dreaming and you the dreamer, and the world of deep sleep and you, the deep sleeper, can they ever be experienced apart from you, the consciousness? What do you think? No. The more we appreciate what consciousness means, it's a self-evident fact. And therefore, Vedanta takes the bold step and says, the worlds of waking, dreaming and deep sleep are appearances in consciousness. Consciousness is the reality in which appearance is the world. Its object is an appearance. Dramatic. Because what the modern materialist paradigm is, matter is real. Space is real. Energy is real. Time, space, matter, energy is real. And we are some mild byproduct. A peculiar byproduct uh, of, of matter. Vedanta reverses it. Consciousness is real. 
Why is it real? It's directly presented to us. The first thing we are aware of is awareness itself. And then everything else. It is the one, un it's directly presented, it is the one unchanging thing about yourself. The one unchanging thing about yourself is that I am and I am aware. Isness and shining. This is the one unchanging thing. Everything else changes. I'm doing a lot of Buddhism at Harvard. There are two courses I'm taking. One on Nagarjuna, the great philosopher of the void, emptiness. And one um, on classical Sanskrit in uh, Buddhist philosophy. And the recurring theme there is change, change, all is change. Uh, impermanent, impermanent, all is impermanent. Anityam, anityam, sarvam anityam. Not only impermanent, momentary. Moment to moment things are changing. Kshanikam, kshanikam, sarvam kshanikam. Momentary, momentary, everything is momentary. Not only changing, not only momentary, empty. There is no self-existence to anything. The table, where is the table apart from its parts? Apart from the top and the bottom and the sides and the inside, where is the table? Well, at least the parts are there. Each part is made of parts also. Where is that part? Of? The example they give is, here's a fist. But where is a fist? It's just an arrangement of five fingers. There's no entity called a fist. Empty, empty, all is empty. And so, all the way down. Empty, empty, all is empty. And because we do not realize this, impermanence, transitory, momentariness, and emptiness, because we do not realize this, dukkham, dukkham, sarvam, dukkham. Sorrow, sorrow, all is sorrow. Cheerful chap. <laughs> they say you don't even have to go to the Turiya, the pure consciousness. If you just dissolve your identification with the physical and the subtle and the causal, you're free. Just see the emptiness of the physical. Emptiness means there is no entity out there. It's a whirling mass of change. There's a, see the emptiness of the mind. All the terrible things that we are attached to. We are scared of, anxious of, desiring of, hopeful of. They are empty conglomerations of thoughts, feelings. Today I was walking in Central Park. That Boston cannot give you. Central Park is. <laughs> Though somebody said, there's something called the Boston Common or something, which is, there's a park there, and they said that's the model for Central Park. It's tiny compared to Central Park, but that was the first one set up in the United States, like a public park. I was walking there, and there's this gentleman who blows bubbles for kids. Kids love it. So soap bubbles, big, iridescent, shining bubbles. They float in the air for a while, and then they pop. Our worlds are like that. Our, our waking world, our dream world, and our deep sleep darkness. Yeah. Especially waking and dream. They are like these iridescent bubbles. Look at your experience of the waking. The physical sensations of being a body. The thoughts, feelings, desires, hopes, anxieties. They are like the sparkling light of that bubble. And they pop. That's the nature of external existence. Whether it's the physical world, subtle world, or causal world. Appears and disappears in you, the consciousness. But you are constant. You are the one who experiences that. Paramahamsa Gatim, this is the goal that the, the Paramahamsas, the highest order of monks, they search for. I've got to get a move on. <laughs> I'm still in the first line of the first verse. <laughs> goal, what kind of goal? Goal to be achieved? That's the amazing thing about Vedanta. They say there's no goal to be achieved. Why? Because you are already that. To come to the Vedanta society, that's a goal to be achieved. Go to Boston, that's a goal to be achieved. Um, get a degree, that's a goal to be achieved. Then get money, earn money, um, you know, have a family, uh, become famous. These are goals to be achieved. Go to heaven after death, that's a goal to be achieved. Become the absolute consciousness, the Turiya, that's not a goal to be achieved. You are that. Then what does Vedanta do? They have a very nice phrase for it. Praptasya prapti. It, you attain that which is always attained. Why do I need to attain which is always attained? Because you don't know it. <laughs> and that makes all the difference. 
What does Vedanta do? A very nice phrase. Praptasya prapti nivrittasya nivritti. It gives you what you have always got and it removes what was never there. Samsara was, when it goes away, when the bubble pops, you realize it was never there. And when it comes back again, it's that bubble made in Central Park for the amusement of kids. Now we are also kids, enlightened kids. Watching the bubble of the world and cheering and clapping when it pops. Not weeping and wailing. So, um, this goal always attained and samsara, the sorrow, the problem, the burden which we are trying to solve life after life. When, we are, when, the, uh, when this enlightenment dawns, we realize that was not a problem to be removed because it was never there. So Vedanta does this great trick, the ultimate con job you might say. <laughs> it gives you what you have always got. At the moment of enlightenment, we realize not only how amazing it is, how wonderful and extraordinary, and an ultimate peace depends upon you, a descends upon you. you. You know intuitively now that you're free forever. And it's all right. But the second thing which happens when we reflect back upon that moment of enlightenment is, it was always all right. And the only difference between you and the others who do not know it yet is that just that, that, that coin has not dropped. That moment of that intuitive flash has not come. But they are exactly the same absolute which you are. And they are also all right. Though they may not think so. <laughs> Paramaham sagatim turiyam. It is the fourth, but not the fourth. It is the one in which the three appear. What are the three? Waker, waker's world, dreamer, dreamer's world, deep sleeper and deep sleep world. They appear and disappear in you, the one. Right now. Yat swapna jagara sushuptam aveti nityam, that which illumines my waking and my dreaming and my deep sleep, my days and my nights and my years and decades and lives to come, all of them are illumined by that one consciousness, which I am. Tat brahma aham, I am that brahman. Atman, the consciousness within us. Brahman, the reality of the world. Atman and brahman are one. And we realize this immediately. Where are the worlds? I am consciousness. Where are the worlds? They are in me. Worlds, I mean waking, dreaming, deep sleep. They are in me. The physical, the subtle, and the, uh, and the causal. They are in me. So I am Atman, and that Atman is Brahman. Tat Brahma Nishkala Maham. Each word is very deep. Entire philosophies are packed into it. Nishkalam, partless. What do you mean partless? Very quickly. Partless means uh, there are three kinds of parts or division. This is called in Sanskrit bhedaha. Bhedaha means division. Three kinds. One is vijatiya bheda. Other than this entity are there other entities. For example, here is a lectern, a, a podium. Other than the podium, are there other things apart from the podium? Yes, there's the Swami here and there's a, there are people and there's a there's a sky and trees and central park. They are all different kinds of things. That's one kind of difference. This is called vijatiya bheda, difference of kind. And there is another kind of difference, uh, sajatiya. The same kind, but are there different podiums? This is a podium and there's another podium. And there's another. Go to the shop, you'll find many podiums. You, uh, there's a tree, and there are many things apart from the tree, but there are many trees too. So each tree is different from the other. D difference in the objects of the same kind, sajatya. And then there's a third kind of difference, which is called swagata, internal differentiation. So yes, I am one being, but in my oneness also there is differentiation. There are hands and this, in this body, there are feet and there's a head and the tummy. They are all different parts because the hands are not the feet, the feet is not the head. So Brahman is devoid of, free of three kinds of difference. One is difference of parts. Brahman does not have difference of parts. Brahman is one and homogeneous. And you can just verify this. This is not theology. You can verify it immediately. Body, does it have parts? Yes. Mind, does it have parts and components? Yes. Various kinds of thoughts, feelings, emotions. If you div divide intellect, 
Emotions, memory, ego, then you've got four divisions already. Mind has components, modules. But consciousness? It cannot have parts. Assignment, you can think about it. <laughs> the consciousness itself cannot have parts, it's partless. And immediately verifiable, take a look inside, partless. If you could discover parts, then what would happen? That would become an object to consciousness. So partless consciousness. If you say Brahman has parts, here's the philosophical import, it becomes Vishishtadvaita. The Vishishtadvaita of Ramanuja says, yes, there is only one reality. And Advaitins say, correct, we are on the same page. But here's the difference. Advaita says there is no internal differentiation within that reality. And Vishishtadvaita says there is internal difference. What kind of internal difference? There is consciousness and there is uh, what it calls uh, that, that being Brahman is there. And Brahman is qualified by material universe, this world, and jivas, sentient beings. The exact Sanskrit phrase is jiva jagat vishishta brahma. So vishishta dvaita. Brahman qualified by the existence of sentient beings and the world. Notice the difference here. What have they done? They have given a separate reality to individual beings like us and a separate reality to this world and included it within Brahman. What does Advaita do? Advaita says, what right do you have to give a separate reality to these? Because they, as you rem remember this difference, you cannot show them separately. Who has ever seen a world apart from consciousness? Who has ever seen sentient beings apart from sentience? So, internal partlessness, one homogeneous reality. That is the meaning of nishkalam. Is there, are there other Brahmans? Difference of the same kind? No. One. Because they, whatever else exists will become an object. It cannot be pure consciousness. Is there something else apart from Brahman, a non-Brahman entity? You can immediately use the same logic. No. Because all that seems to be non-Brahman appears to Brahman, derives its existence from Brahman. It cannot exist apart from Brahman. So Brahman is the one reality without external differentiation, without differentiation of the same kind, and most importantly, without internal differentiation. Nishkalam aham. Nabcha bhuta sangha, not a collection of in the gentleman's language, protons and neutrons. In. First verse. It's quite a lot to contemplate on in the morning before a cup of coffee. <laughs> now, you don't have to do all that. This is the, uh, the, the packed in sense into that. But when you chant it, it's very simple. At, the, at dawn, I contemplate on the constant sense of I consciousness, which is existence, consciousness, bliss, uh, which is the goal, the fourth. Why is the fourth? Because it's the witness of the three, waking, dreaming, deep sleep. Sapna Jagra, Sushupti Mavedi, Nityam, constant light. And this consciousness is Brahman, the reality, the ground of the universe. I am that, not a collection of matter. Moving on, second verse. Now I'll be faster. Actually not. The second verse is even tougher. Pratar bhajami manasavacha samagamyam vacho vibhanti nikhila yadanugraheda yanneti neti vachasanigamavocho tam deva deva majamachutamahuragriyam At dawn I worship that which is beyond mind and beyond speech. By whose grace all speech is revealed? Which is expressed by the scriptures, by the Upanishads as not this, not this. That God of gods, Deva Devam, that one of unchanging nature, Achyutam, that one which is first, Agriyam, I bow down, I worship. I adore at, the, at, at dawn. What does it mean? First of all, it cannot be expressed by language. Say, Swami, a lot of words to speak about something that cannot be spoken of. 
Uh, why can it not be expressed by language? So in the Mandukya Upanishad, in the seventh mantra, the same thing is said um, that Turiyam, the fourth, cannot be expressed by language. Language operates in the first three, physical, subtle, and causal. You can speak about them, but you cannot speak about the fourth. Though it's real, but you cannot speak about it. Why not? Um, is that censorship? Are they trying to silence us? <laughs> no. The reason is we must understand, Shankaracharya explains there, uh, we must understand how language works, what it can do, and what it cannot do. How does language work? It requires one of five characteristics. I'll just quickly sum up what he has said there. It requires one of five characteristics to work. Language to reveal something, to speak about something. That something must have one of these five, at least one or more. What are they? What are they? Um, uh, it, it must be um, some kind of quality. So get me the, the yellow rose. The moment I say yellow, you immediately distinguish it from the white rose and you say, okay, the Swami wants a yellow rose. So the quality yellow allowed you to speak about that rose. You're able to distinguish it, it meant something. But Brahman is without quality. Brahman is beyond attributes. The moment you have an attribute, what will happen? It will become an object. It's beyond attributes. Well, there's another way. Action, Kriya. Um, one is an action. Suppose you say, that car is blocking the, um, the uh, entrance. Call the driver of this car. Now, you have identified among the 100 people present, you have identified one person as the driver. The, uh, the food is very good. The cook is to be congratulated. You have identified one person as the cook. The cooking and driving, these are actions. And you can identify something, you can speak about something through their functioning. But Brahman, lazy that Brahman is, beyond all action, nishkriyam. Another way is substance, dravya. A thing can be identified by its defining characteristic. Shankaracharya says, um, this thing is a cow. Why? It, it possesses the universal quality of cowness, which you divide things into classes and species and class. Uh, and uh, every object that you see, does it have these? This is a book. Um, this is a table. This is a cow. And the object is identified by its defining characteristic, or they call it in philosophical language and universe, a universal. But Brahman has no defining characteristic. It's not an object among different objects. Another way of identifying, of using language, is relationship. Father, guru, relationship, you talk about it. But then this will also not work, because Brahman has no relationship with anything else, because Brahman is non-dual. There's no second thing. A relationship has to have at least two terms. Father, son or daughter. Guru must have a disciple. Without disciple, guru is no, is no guru at all. Without children, the father is no father at all. So, there is, a, in Sanskrit, they say, dvinishtha sambandha. Relationship depends on at least two terms. Where is the second term for Brahman to have a relationship with? No Brahman. Nothing else apart from Brahman. Brahman is the only reality, non-dual. The very meaning of Advaita is non-dual. There is one last option for language to work. It is called convention. Convention. We call this person Bill. Why? Is it because of the object, the quality, the activity, the relationship? No, no, none of them. It's not etymological. It's just by convention, this child, this person is named Bill. So can't we do that? Can't we call it Brahman? Just give it a name. Atman, Brahman, Shiva, Vishnu, something like that. So just give it a name, then language can work. No, that won't work either. Notice how you use convention. Where, when can convention work? If I say, this person is Bill. Those who don't know Bill, they'll ask, which person? For convention to work, conventional naming to work, you must point out this person is Bill, so that people now know that this is the name for this object. 
But if you cannot point out, then how will it work? If I say this person is Bill and, and I don't show who Bill is, then you don't know. It didn't work. Language didn't work there. Do you follow? Can Brahman be pointed out? No. So if you say that is Brahman, we speak about Brahman and Atman and the ultimate reality and the absolute and nobody is any wiser. Why? Because it can't be pointed out. So because all the factors which determine the use of language are absent in Brahman, language cannot work upon Brahman. All of this which I said, Shankaracharya uses half a sentence. Shabda pravritti nimitta rahitattvat brahma abhyapadeshyam. Because Brahman is devoid of the activating factors of language, of linguistic usage. So Brahman is beyond language. That's it. <laughs> half, half, half a sentence. Words cannot express Brahman. And yet, the verse very beautifully says, Yadanugrahena. Words, language, functions to reveal everything in our life. Everything is determined by language, linguistic usage. Because of what? Because of only one thing, consciousness. It's consciousness which enables us to use and deploy language and for it to give us meaningful first-person linguistic experience. The experience of speaking, hearing, understanding, describing, this experience, not possible without consciousness. Then how do you, if you cannot talk about it at all, if you cannot think about it at all, there's a deep connection between language and thinking. If you cannot think about it at all, if you cannot talk about it at all, how do you teach it? And what are the Upanishads and Vedanta? Right now you're talking so much. for <laughs> You're using so many words to describe something that cannot be described. How do you describe it? And what, what is the way out? The Upanishads have discovered strategies. Strategies of speaking about that which cannot be spoken about. What is the strategy? One strategy we know is Neti Neti. The famous, not this. There are others also. There are about half a dozen strategies. Very interesting. There is this, if you are interested, not this, not this is one, which I'll just explain briefly. But also paradox. Further than the furthest, nearer than the nearest, greater than the greatest, smaller than the smallest. So, um, to see action in inaction, and inaction in action, that is really seeing language of paradox, language of contradiction. They're not just trying to confuse us. They really mean something very precise, which we have to grasp. And there is something called the method of implication. There are ways of telling stories using metaphors, which we are supposed to catch. So there are about five different strategies that's adopted. But the most famous one is Neti Neti. What is Neti Neti? It works like this. You ask the question, what am I? And we do go through the whole process. You remember the process of seer and seen, drig drishya viveka, or the process of the five layers of the human personality, pancha kosha viveka, or the one we just talked about, waking, dreaming, deep sleep. And we realize I am not the waker. Because the dreamer and the waker are different, and I am both. So I cannot be the waker only, neti. But I cannot be the dreamer only by the same logic. I wake up, the dreamer is abandoned. So I cannot be the dreamer. The same logic, I cannot be only the deep sleeper. They all come and go. Neti, neti, neti. If I am not any of them, not the waker, none of the waker's world, including this mass of protons and neutrons, which the gentleman spoke about. Neti. Sleep, dream world, thoughts, personality, memories, me, the person, neti. And I'll assignment again to supply the arguments and the methods for that. Deep sleep, same thing, neti, not, not this. Immediately the, the conclusion will be, oh, I don't exist. Then there's nothing. Then I'm not there at all. Why? Because all that I could be, you have denied it. And I'm convinced I could, cannot be any of these. These are all in the Buddha's words or Nagarjuna's words. They are all temporary. They are all momentary. They are all empty. And of course, they are all full of suffering. I am none of them. Very good. And then, there's nothing else, so I'm nothing. Neti, not even that. It is not that you're any of this. Whatever exists, you're none of it. So I'm non-existent, not that either. 
neither all that is, nor that which is not. Do I exist? Careful here. No. So I don't exist. No. <laughs> the Buddha was asked, so why don't you tell us the certain things that um, um, other teachers teach? Does the Atman exist? The Buddha said, did I say it, it does? Oh, so it does not exist. Did I say it does not? You're just confusing us. <laughs> How strange that Sri Ramakrishna, there is a little passage, not much discussion about Buddhism, but there's a little passage where uh, the young disciples are talking about the Buddha and they talk to Sri Ramakrishna. And there are two things. The first one is often quoted. Sri Ramakrishna said, somebody said, the Buddha is an atheist. Sri Ramakrishna said, why do you call him an atheist? He could not express what he had found. Do you know, know what the, three things he said actually. So he could not express in language that which he had found. And he's absolutely correct. That's the first thing he said. So he's not an atheist. He, you cannot express. And that's the most precise formulation which you cannot express. It's called the great silence of the Buddha. Not because he didn't know. He was a pretty bright chap. <laughs> but because that's the correct um, uh, answer. Second thing which Sri Ramakrishna said, often not quoted, but which I find extraordinarily relevant to what I'm doing in Harvard now. Sri Ramakrishna said, that which is, in the, which is neither the extreme of is, exists, not the extreme of does not exist, that which is the middle, that is right. That is exactly right. In Bengali he said, Osti nastir majhe shei thik thik. And I was reading just yesterday, uh, assignment. <laughs> My deadline was noon just now. But I, I, I worked hard and I um, submitted the assignment before getting on the train yesterday. And one of the verses I came across in the Madhyamaka Karika, the text which I'm studying is, um, uh, it is the Mula Madhyamaka Karika, the, the verses on the middle way, written by Nagarjuna, a Buddhist philosopher 2000 years ago, who lived around 100 CE, uh, 2000 years ago. And the commentary was written by a Tibetan commentator called Mabja. It's the, the text is called uh, the, uh, the Ornament of Reasoning. It's about this thick. And he wrote it in Tibetan a thousand years ago. And then the, uh, a further commentary was written by the greatest of Tibetan uh, Buddhist philosophers, Songkhapa. Uh, he wrote it 500 years ago, again in Tibetan. And that's called the Ocean of Reasoning. It was one of the most difficult texts I've seen. It's this thick. And so a thousand years ago in classical Sanskrit, Nagarjuna, uh, 2,000 years ago, and a thousand years ago in Tibetan by a t Tibetan monk, 500 years ago by another Tibetan monk, and all of that translated into almost incomprehensible English. <laughs> and every week you have to turn up three chapters, four chapters, read it, re write an assignment, respond in class. So I think that's the Harvard experience for you. <laughs> the, the teacher is uh, very interesting. He'll, He'll ask you to be the that Sankhapa. And he will say, Jerimpoche, here, explain how it is not emptiness, this world. And you have to say immediately, respond immediately. <laughs> so there I came across a verse. Exact words of Sri Ramakrishna. What Sri Ramakrishna says in Bengali in 19th century Bengal. Two thousand years ago, Nagarjuna says, between the extremes of Existence and non-existence is the middle path. Is there where the Madhyamakas fare, where the Madhyamaka walks, the middle, middle path philosophy of the Buddha. Exact same language. But now we understand. How do we understand this? Go back to this witness consciousness which we talked about in the, in the beginning. Is it an object? What are objects? Waking world, dream world, deep sleep darkness. Is it an object? No. None of the objects in the world are it. It is not a thing which exists as an object. Is it non-existent? Not at all. 
It is that which is meant by the middle path. But remember, then why didn't Buddha say it if it's that easy? Remember, even when we are saying it, what the Buddha or Nagarjuna would object is, you are, what they call it, reification. You are again making it the object of language. They will say, the basic thrust of Nagarjuna is, for God's, not God's sake, they don't believe in God. <laughs> for void's sake, for the, <laughs> for the sake of emptiness. Keep quiet, don't, give, don't talk about it. <laughs> because the moment, the most precise explanation, the most precise um, description of it is Buddha's silence. Yeah. And now it can be our silence too. Because we know now what it actually means. Except that it cannot be expressed. Neti neti. Deva devam. That is the, it's nothing abstract. Deva devam. It is the God of gods. How is it the God of gods? There are two senses here. One is the uh, surface mythological sense, where in Hinduism, you know, you have many gods, gods with a small g, Indra, Chandra, Varuna, the, the deities in charge of natural forces. And then you have God with a capital G. That is the God of religion, Bhagavan, Ishwara, whom we pray to, whom we worship, whom we love and adore and surrender to. Ishwara in uh, Vedanta. Saguna Brahman, Brahman with qualities, the God of religion, whom we worship in a temple and a church and a mosque, God of religion. But beyond that lies Deva Devam, the God of gods, which is Brahman itself, which we are talking about. And somebody is going, and that I am? Yes, you are, but the real you. <laughs> That's the surface level. There's a deeper level there. What's the deeper level? The meaning of Deva in Vedanta, Deva literally means the shining one, the light which reveals. What is the shining one in our body, in our body-mind? The senses. The eyes are one kind of Deva. Um, the, or the power, to be precise, the power of a kind of Deva. Ears, um, the eyes, the motor organs, speech and all. So the senses, the sensory organs and the motor organs, they're all controlled by these powers called Devas. And what is the Deva Deva? The God of all God, the, the, that which is be behind lighting up all the senses and the mind? Consciousness, yes. When you say Deva Devam, the, Lord of, the, the God of Gods, it is that consciousness within us. That is the deeper meaning of Deva Devam, the, Lord of con the God of Gods. Let me just translate the third verse. Third verse is also very beautiful, very poetic and inspiring. Pratarnamami tamasaf paramarkavarnam Purnam sanatana padam purushottam akhyam Yasminidam jagadashesha shesha murtau Rajvam bhujangam eva pratibhasitam vai At dawn I bow down to, I salute Tamasaf paramarkavarnam That blazing sun of consciousness beyond all darkness this goes back to the, the beautiful Upanishadic teaching which Swami Vivekananda was so fond of repeating here and in the East. Srinvantu Vishwe Amritasya Putra. Listen ye children of immortal bliss. He's talking to us. Aye dhamani divyani tastu. And the gods, small g gods, who might be in the heavens. You listen too, because what I'm going to say is beyond both of, beyond you and beyond us too, ordinary human beings. So what are you going to say? Vedaham purusham mahantam. I have realized that infinite being. What is that? Tamasaf param. It says, Vedaham purusham mahantam adityavarnam. Tamasaf parastat. Blazing forth like the sun. Beyond all darkness. Beyond darkness, beyond the darkness of ignorance. Beyond the darkness of suffering. Beyond the darkness of mortality. The death. Beyond all darkness, there is this blazing light of awareness. Tamasaf parastat, beyond darkness, beyond suffering. I have realized that. So that's what Shankaracharya is paraphrasing here. Obviously, you can see the reference to the sun here, at, at dawn, that blazing light beyond darkness. 
the darkness of ignorance has passed and now i i sh- i'm irradiated with the light of awareness tamasah param pratar namami tamasah param arka varnam arka means sun varnam means blazing forth with the light of the sun um purnam it is complete there's so much depth here i can put it in philosophical language it is complete purnam in what sense ontologically complete epistemologically complete and axiologically complete fancy words what does it mean ontologically complete means complete as being there is no existence nothing exists apart from it brahman which you are epistemologically complete means nothing more is to be known apart from it brahman which you are axiologically complete means axiology means study of values there is nothing more valuable more which is a source of happiness more nothing more than that which is to be attained had in life than it which you are purnam this all this is encompassed in the word purnam sanatana padam that eternal state eternal we keep saying eternal so buddha and the nagarjuna and all of them the tibetans they will get their robes in a flap when you see that because they say non eternal but you know if you look deeply in vedanta uh, eternal does not really mean eternal it's just to distinguish it from the changing from the mortal eternal also includes an element of time when you say brahman is all pervasive you are already including space when you say brahman is eternal you are already including time when you say brahman is everything you are already including everything but really brahman is beyond time beyond space and beyond object and there you cannot speak of eternity or all pervasive um, all pervasiveness or being all things there it is non dual there is no second thing apart from it sanatana padam purushottamakyam the highest reality this this is a reference to the third 15 chapter of the bhagavad gita one of the most important chapters called purushottam yoga purusha uh, being of consciousness uttama the highest being so there is this they call kshara purusha changing beings consciousness associated with bodies and minds right now there is akshara purusha consciousness associated with maya god of religion the highest thing that religion can conceive of and there is something beyond that purushottama which is which is what they talk about which is the absolute which is consciousness in itself existence consciousness uh, bliss which you are that thou art i pray to the lord on this auspicious occasion the beginning of this fall session may the lord may the divine mother bless us with that wisdom to realize which is our greatest possession from by which we can overcome all suffering in life make our lives a blessing to ourselves and a blessing to all around us om shanti 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 hari hi om tat sat shri ram krishna rupa namastute